Psychological safety is actually focused on the group experience and this climate where people feel safe or not safe to take risks. And we are taking risks all the time when we position ourselves, when we express ourselves, what questions do we ask and what questions we don't. Okay, we don't have space for another meeting and so on, but it's even more important to think, okay, thanks to the fact that we feel safe, we have better dynamics. The fact that we have better dynamics, we solve our issues fast. So in the end, we see that it leads, I mean, conscious development, conscious team development, conscious trust development leads to 20 to 30% of increase in efficiency after two to three months in teams. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skills to be successful? You're listening to Designing Schools, and I'm your host, Dr. Saba Kidwai, educator, researcher, and storyteller. Join me each week for stories and strategies that bridge the gap between research and practice as together we explore how might we design schools. Trust. It's a word I never heard anyone talk about in education until I began my research at Design 39 Campus, a public school in San Diego, California, that used design thinking to challenge traditional practices in education. Yet this word, trust, became the greatest takeaway that I left with. We talk about culture, we talk about vision, we talk about collaboration, creativity, and so many other things when speaking about what we want to see in schools. Yet I rarely hear the word trust. During my research, I learned that trust was the foundation, if anything else, was to thrive. I turned my research into a documentary, and on February 3rd at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'm hosting an event with Joe Erpelding, the former principal of Design39, for the live launch of our trailer. If you want to learn more about our research study at Design39, Come watch the trailer with us and hear from the teachers and parents about the value of design thinking in K-12, then I invite you to reserve your free ticket at the link that I'll include in the show notes. Or you can visit designingschools.org. I'm so excited to introduce you today to Larissa and Adam. Larissa and Adam are the co-founders of Make Team Work, a global consultancy specializing in team development, culture change, and visual collaboration. They were founded in 2020, moments before the pandemic began, and they're headquartered in Amsterdam. They have a relevant portfolio of services and an incredible roster of clients, designing and facilitating bespoke learning experiences that help teams build trust and achieve great results. You'll definitely want to browse their site because in such a short time, they've amassed an incredible library of case studies, a true testament to their incredible approach working with teams. They've been praised for a hands-on approach. They're thought leaders in applying agility, creativity, and the science of team and organizational development into workplaces around the globe, both in person and remotely. I'm actually really excited to introduce you to their incredible analogy, the Quirky Owl Program. They share it in the podcast where they use it to equip leaders to be authentic while having the tools to develop high-performing teams. I first heard Larissa and Adam speak at the Reflect Conference hosted by Mural, 
I'll drop a link into the recording of their session in the show notes as well. These days, when I'm looking to learn from someone, I'm really looking for depth. So in this case, yes, we know trust and vulnerability are important, but I'm looking for strategies that are really going to help you shift your practice and go deeper. And Adam and Larissa really rise to the occasion. I begin by asking Larissa and Adam how they came to co-found a company together just a few short moments before the pandemic began. Yeah, just before COVID, just before COVID. And before that, we met in uh, in Berlin. But what really connected us is that we both did a master's degree program at Hyper Island, which is a experiential digital leadership school, originally from uh, Sweden. And during our program, uh, we both learned a lot about development, vulnerable leadership, feedback, psychological safety, and many more of these, uh, let's call them modern leadership topics. And uh, I was doing this program in 2017, Larissa in 2019. And in 2019, uh, Larissa, after her program, she, uh, moved to Berlin. And this is uh, where we met. And I was back then uh, leading a startup in Berlin, like uh, we were developing a learning, um, very nice uh, learning product. Inential is a startup, it still goes forward. I exited in the end of uh, 2019 because I was already really craving of getting back to the field to work again with real people, uh, with real teams, and really have impact on what's going on there, dynamics in trust and how teams collaborate um, together. So in the end of 2019, I exited the startup and then we decided to go full on. It was still before COVID. So first we, get, we got um, uh, two projects from our uh, former clients. And then when COVID really hit, they needed to adapt fast to the new reality. They needed to work out their remote culture. And this is where we helped them. And that was like an initial project uh, connected to, uh, to culture. Then, then we developed our online course, Teamwork Essentials, which, uh, yeah, probably th- this is the mural that you might have uh, seen. And this course, um, well, we didn't get rich, but it opened really a lot of doors for us. And we met a lot of fantastic people and also checked relevance of, uh, of different programs. It was a little bit like writing a book, Larissa, no? What do you think? Maybe you can jump in <laughs> and, and, and continue a little bit of the story. Yes. So as previous strategists, uh, we were both strategists as well. I think it it was a shift in our career to help not only teams create the best solutions, but focus on how they work together for them to be actually able to deliver to to those amazing solutions. So it was a great shift with uh, a very big need in the market and that is only growing. It's a need that, as, as you mentioned, from your, your background and your experience in, in education, a need that doesn't have as much awareness. I think COVID helped a lot. And yeah, we still have a, a big wave coming in front of us. How do we look at new ways of working? And as, as to make teamwork, our goal is really to help teams and companies to collaborate better and, and grow in this field and sphere. I just wanted to, to, to mention this uh, yeah, I wanted to mention the aha moment, the really aha moment, because, you know, we were like in 2020, we would be testing a lot, like tens of different sessions, approach, approaches, workshops with many, many teams. 
and many teams worldwide. And I remember this one particular moment when we were we were running a session with IBM design team on feedback, actually. And I remember that that we got feedback actually from team members um, later on that they they didn't only improve their team dynamics, but they also started using um, these learnings to, their, uh, to build their, their relationships out for their life, their families. And then hearing this from participants, uh, just I remember, I just reflected and thought, yeah, I think we are, we have something here, something really valuable that people like and people appreciate and, and that is really of true value for them. As Larissa and Adam share, designing teams is a need in the market. It's a need many people didn't even know they had until the pandemic. Their goal is to help teams and companies collaborate better. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, collaboration is a word we hear so much. Yet it's not just about getting people together. This was one of the most insightful moments during my research. On the outside, when you walk into Design 39 campus, your curiosity is piqued by how the educators, or as they call them, learning experience designers work together. But you're left wondering, why does this not happen everywhere? Why is this the exception and not the norm? How are they able to make the time and space daily for collaboration? And more importantly, how are they able to sustain and scale this? The answer, a culture of vulnerability and trust. After the success of Project Oxygen, where Google researched what makes a great manager, they embarked upon a new research study in 2015 called Project Aristotle. Here, Google wanted to identify what makes a great team. To their surprise, it wasn't anything that would immediately come to mind, such as those with the most senior people, the highest IQs, or even those who made the least amount of mistakes. After studying 180 diverse teams over two years, they identified five dynamics that make a great team. The most significant of the five being a term coined by Harvard professor and author, Amy Edmondson, psychological safety. That was also a word that was new to me. Psychological safety is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. Teams which made more mistakes, they said, were actually more successful than others. Why? Because creating an environment in which people feel comfortable to take risks is key to fostering innovation. The difference that makes a difference, they said, with the norms and values you establish as a team to create a culture of safety. Have you ever been in a meeting where no one really voiced their opinions? There wasn't much discussion and everyone simply went along with what the manager or leader of the meeting said? That is, of course, until the meeting is over, and then all of those thoughts and ideas come out. A solid team, though, they said, should be able to bounce ideas off of each other. During the meeting, not after. They should be able to work together to strengthen action plans, help solve issues, and provide support to each other. I love how value-driven Larissa and Adam are. You can tell how energized they are in helping people design teams as part of a culture where they can thrive together. One of my favorite lines that Joe Arpelding often shares is when you change the language, you change the conversation. I ask Adam and Larissa to define the terms that make up the language of modern day leadership, especially the difference between psychological safety and trust. Uh, the key difference between psychological safety and trust 
is that psychological safety is the, the belief concerning the group norms, the environment, and the team, while trust is really related to my expectation in relation to you or in relation to an organization, a business, and a brand. So you might trust one colleague, you might not trust one colleague or one organization. And psychological safety is actually focused on the group experience and this climate where people feel safe or not safe to take risks. And we are taking risks all the time when we position ourselves, when we express ourselves, what questions do we ask and what questions we don't. So it relates psychological safety to, my, to the near consequences of what I do. Trust is related more into a one-to-one -one aspect in relation to the future. So, for example, let's suppose that I believe that we are not doing the best work for a specific client. And I fail to ask Adam about it. So we work together. I think this is not the right path to go, but I keep it to myself. In this case, I'm worried about the, the effect and the result of asking my question. I'm afraid of being criticized, of being humiliated. No, that was the plan. What do you mean you're asking questions right now? You are not qualified to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and the easiest is to stay quiet. That, that's where the danger is. When there's no psychological safety, we just don't hear these suggestions, these questions, these different perspectives on the table. So if there's no climate where people feel safe enough to take these risks, they don't speak, they don't share concerns, they don't share questions, ideas, and in the end, it kills our ability to innovate, to grow, and to deliver a better value to our clients, to the world, in our relationships. I share with Adam and Larissa how people are feeling in education today. When the pandemic began, I remember sitting in meetings with district leaders, with educators, and the many individuals in between. The one theme I saw over and over was how many people felt that they needed permission to share an idea, voice a concern, or ask a question, especially teachers. While yes, people were stressed and frustrated, there was also an enthusiasm for what could be. Yet very few places had the culture, the scaffolds, and the support to facilitate these conversations. I want to introduce you to Nima Avashia. She's been teaching in the Boston Public Schools for 19 years, and she's been a powerful voice for autonomy, for educators, and students. I came across Nima's work early on in the pandemic when she advocated for teacher and student voices to be included in Rethinking School. Nima is an advocate of human-centered design. Part of leading with vulnerability to create a culture of trust and safety is being able to recognize that it's okay that we don't have all the answers to today's complex problems. As a human-centered leader, this was Nima, and this was the approach that she took. I asked her to share what it was like to be vulnerable and design with her students during this very uncertain time. So my name is Nima Avachia. I am a 19th year educator in the Boston Public Schools. Um, I have taught at the same school for that whole time. I started teaching ancient civilizations way back in the day. And then I was a civics teacher uh, for the majority of my career. And then this year I've transitioned to being an ethnic studies teacher. So all living in the world of history, but really starting to move more into space of thinking about how history and identity really relate to each other. 
So I think it's probably important to know that like pre-pandemic, I felt like a fairly successful teacher. In general, I felt like I had strong skills around lesson planning. I knew how to engage students. I had strong relationships with students. And in the day-to-day, like I felt like things really went well in my classroom for the most part. Certainly there were always bumps. There are always things you can be better at. But by and large, I felt like I was doing pretty well. And then the pandemic happened and we're like on a daily basis in in in-person school, 90 to 98% of my kids would engage. I had lost tons of students. Like on the daily, maybe half of my students were completing work. I would hold Zoom sessions and like the same five kids would come to them. And part of that was lack of clarity. I think in the beginning in particular, like what are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing? There was a lot of lack of clarity for everyone. But part of it was also, I didn't know how to do it. I'd never taught online. I didn't know what it meant to be a teacher of students in a remote context. And as it became more clear that this wasn't going to be two weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, but that we were really looking at going into the following school year, um, doing the same thing or some version of it, I started to feel a lot of urgency within myself to like figure out how to do better because I couldn't really face the idea of starting another school year with students who I didn't know, I didn't have relationships with. I couldn't even rely on any of those things. And I I was going to be teaching them and responsible for their learning. And I was like, well, if it goes the way it's going right now, like this is going to be terrible. And no one knew what they were doing. And no one had ever done virtual learning for like entire student populations, right? By and large, when virtual learning has happened, it's been like a small subset of people who choose into that because it works for them. So it wasn't like there was like a body of research I could go read and be like, I'm going to learn from here. I really had to talk to students. I had to figure out from young people, like what wasn't working for them about this experience and what I needed to change in order to be more effective moving forward. And so I designed like a set of questions that really were about that. Like what's working for you right now? What's not working for you? What do you think adults need to understand that they don't understand right now? And I really just created space and held space for students. And I made really clear that like, I didn't know anything and that like they were the experts on this. They're the only generation of young people who's had to do this thing that we were doing. And so really their expertise needed to drive. And it was probably one of the most transformative conversations I've had as not just an educator, but as a human being, because kids really made themselves vulnerable and were really honest about what was hard. And were really honest about the ways in which we failed them, not because you know, they had a lot of empathy. They knew we didn't know what we were doing, but they also knew what could have made it better. And they hadn't had the space to say. And their sort of sharing of what was so hard about that remote experience really helped me to shift the way I thought about school in the fall and really helped me to change the way I design lessons, the way I engage with students, the kinds of conversations I had with families. It just really allowed me to turn in a direction that I needed to go, but that I couldn't have gone without them. <laughs> Could you perhaps share like maybe like two or three of the insights that resonated with you most that like most influenced your design? Yeah, I think that, I mean, one thing kids said is that, you know, basically our school went from doing like seven periods a day in person to seven periods a day online. And kids were like, this doesn't work. Like it's too fast. There aren't enough breaks. It's too much screen time. Like we can't We can't hold all of this. And so we actually made a decision as a school community in the fall then to only do three classes at a time. 
So instead of having like seven 60 minute classes, you had like three 90 to 100 minute classes. And we did it in a module structure. So you'd have three classes for four weeks, then you'd go to another three, then you'd come back to your previous three, but really kind of trying to focus on like less is more. So we need fewer people who you're interacting with at a given time. You need more time in that content area. You need to be able to go deeper and go slower. And those moves, I mean, kids just were like these, I mean, the feedback we got was that like, those were exactly the right moves. And a lot of kids, it's been interesting coming back to in-person school are like, why are we doing that thing again? Right? Like, why did we go back? Like, this was right. It wasn't just right for remote. It was just right. So why are we reverting back to old ways of doing things? And I think they're totally right. I couldn't convince anyone else that that was the right thing to do. I tried, but it just is interesting. I think in some ways in that remote time, like we had permission to do the things that actually felt right to people's bodies and minds and to do the things that made sense. And so then it's been kind of surreal to return back to like, quote, normal, everyone's favorite word, and to be like, no, but this is all wrong. Like it was wrong before, and we know it's wrong because we did it the other way. So why are we back here again? It builds context. So if teachers feel that they are not safe to share, that nobody is listening, that they can't really safely contribute, then it might also resonate to to students because uh, I guess that that the culture that we operate in somehow determines also our expressions. So I think that this is why it's so crucial that psychological safety is, is I mean, exists at each and every level of, of operations. When we talk about modern leadership or different ways of collaborating, the do-as-I-say approach is very much top-down. And if we do want to collaborate, to redesign the systems and, and the way we live, we work, we do need the space to, to share, to bring perspectives and this climate that expects me to bring my best. And if I have something in my mind that is expected me to share, even though it's, it doesn't go accordingly to the previous plan. Larissa and Adam are correct. Not creating a culture where teachers feel safe to voice their ideas and concerns trickles down to the culture we often see in classrooms with students. I asked Nima, based on her 19 years of experience, why was she able to do this? And why is it so hard for so many to design with teachers and students, especially when we know that change is working? Nima shared the example of how the redesigned school schedule was something that students really enjoyed. Yet, once they returned in person, it all went away. Why? With teachers being there with students day to day, why do we not design with them? Why is the culture of trust so broken within education? Uh, I think there's a, a lot of factors. I think one is that really often the people who are in charge of making the decisions are not proximate to the people most affected by them. And sometimes the timeline on which they were proximate is pretty like prolonged or pretty far away. So it's not even like they're, you know, like, oh, well, last year I was in the classroom, right? Like the majority of the people making decisions during the pandemic about education had never taught during a pandemic and had never been a student during the pandemic. And so their frames of reference for like what school is supposed to be, how it's supposed to look, what accountability means, like all of those frames don't relate to the actual context that people are teaching and learning in and existing in. 
And I think that like the most generous version of me that that like tries to think about, well, like, why wouldn't you try to get proximate is that I, I think there is some like real threat to identity that happens to people where like they're scared to admit that they don't know the answer. And it feels like their entire like sort of way in which they've gotten their role as a leader is by acting like they had all the answers. So then to be in that role and to say, well, I don't have them and I don't know, I think it feels very frightening. And I think we've kind of created a culture around leadership in our, I think in our country writ large, where like leaders don't make mistakes and leaders don't say, I don't know. And I, I feel like it's just so wrong. Like it, that shouldn't be what the culture of leadership is. But, you know, I was talking to a friend who works in politics and she was like, well, no one can own the mistake because if you own the mistake, you own the mistake. Like that's going to live with you. That's going to go through your career. People will always associate that mistake with you. And it's so weird as an educator where like mistakes are how we learn. Like you can't learn anything if you don't make mistakes. They're not a thing to be ashamed of. And yeah, I own my mistakes. I am who I am because of my mistakes. I wouldn't be who I am without them. Like I don't have shame about my errors. I think how we respond to the mistake and what we do with it is important. But the the fact of making them is like human, right? But we've set up our leaders in this way where it's like, you don't get to be human anymore. You can't make mistakes. You can't say, I don't know. Because if you do, then people are like, well, then you shouldn't be in that role. But like, how could anyone know this pandemic is, no one knew. I mean, maybe some people somewhere do disaster preparedness and like they had some ideas, but like, by and large, there aren't answers right now. There aren't right ways. We don't know them. The only way we're going to find them is by talking to the most affected people. And yet that's like the thing that's happening the least. Nima reminds me of an article by Frank Levy and Richard Manane called Dancing with Robots. They share that in today's world, what differentiates humans from machines is our ability to solve complex problems problems to which there are no answers. A machine can solve for two plus two, but it can't solve for how best to design a schedule for Boston public schools in the midst of a pandemic. This is where design thinking becomes an invaluable skill set and mindset by being able to have the structures to facilitate conversations, complex challenges that feel overwhelming and frightening become manageable because we have a framework for how to navigate them. These frameworks give us the confidence to be comfortable with ambiguity and shift from being afraid to asking questions to becoming curious about empathizing with those around us and those we're designing for. I often share that one of the greatest lessons I learned is that cultures of innovation begin with a culture of empathy. So the question I'm wondering now is how do we even know to what degree we have a culture of trust and safety? How do we become more open to acknowledging and becoming curious about our cultures? I imagine it's one of those things that we all think we have or we all think is perfect until we actually step back and do the assessment, conduct the empathy interviews, and lean into having those vulnerable conversations. And as I often also share, when we begin with empathy, what we think is challenged by what we learn. We're so often afraid of the answers, yet as the past two years have taught us, not taking a human-centered approach as a modern-day leader can have a detrimental effect on your organization and workplace culture. I asked Larissa and Adam, if we want to assess our organizations, where do we begin?
Well, I think we have to thank a lot to Amy Edmondson. She's been studying the topic <laughs> for quite a while and we have benchmarks. So we have surveys as a very popular assessment and also reflection. So we have the questions that we can scale from strongly agree to strongly disagree. And for instance, for all of you that are listening to us, maybe you could reflect on your context. If you make a mistake as part of this team, it's not held against you. We all make mistakes. How do we deal with them? People on the team never reject others for being different. If we want new and, and better solutions, we need to be open to those perspectives. People can bring up problems and difficult issues, so on and so forth. So we, we really look like to use this assessment and not only as a questionnaire, but bringing them to the conversation so people can do the assessment individually and then come together to reflect and, 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 and discuss. And based on them, we might reflect how can we together build more psychological safety? What were the stories? What were the moments that you identified that you had something to share and you didn't, that your skills were not valued? And another way is also to have hypothetical scenarios. So how do you think you or your colleagues would respond according to certain situation? Would they keep it to themselves? Would they hold back? So in this sense, we can identify if there is or if there is not psychological safety. So understanding what the concept is about and being able to talk about it and start to build this open conversation, I believe is the way to go. Nicely, and there are, and there are different, different ways to go. It can be digital assessments or questionnaires using Typeform, SurveyMonkey, or, or any other form, uh, form software. And then it can be part of the team retrospective if a team already practiced retrospective. So these questions that Larissa was mentioning earlier, they can be added as retro items in order for team to uh, reflect and, and to discuss um, this concept. And the, the third and most profound way is to make first the, to take first the assessment. And then uh, have a dedicated workshop where you just uh, see the results in a team and discuss them and discuss the, the challenges that you have there and discuss situations where you felt vulnerable, when you didn't feel safe and so on and so forth in order to look at Look at it as a team, understand that, okay, we are super better efficient if we feel safe. We are happier and more engaged if we feel safe. We need to get there. How might we get there? And then bringing, bringing this question, bring a little bit of science and like a structured approach. And then it all, it all depends on the team and like how, how they want to proceed with it and how deep they want to go. Because from our perspective, it quite often starts from leaders. This first vulnerability is shared by leaders, and then other people follow. And in the end, it works like a positive virus side of team and organization. And this is what we aim to go. The survey and benchmark that Larissa shares from Amy Edmondson are linked for you in the show notes. Larissa asks us to examine our organizations, and this survey is a great place to start. Understand the concept, take the assessment, build an open conversation with retrospectives, and have a dedicated workshop where you can discuss these with your team, where you go deeper into examples on the different areas that came up in the survey. 
Adam shares the idea of a retrospective. And if you're not familiar with this term, it's essentially a reflection. And these can be done daily with your teams, weekly with your teams. Either way, they're an essential part of continuing the conversation, keeping the dialogue open, and building and reinforcing that culture of trust and safety. Adam also highlights how this work begins by the leader modeling vulnerability. Over the past three weeks, I shared my three-part series with the superintendent of Santa Ana Unified, Jerry Almandares. If you're in education, or even if you're not, and you haven't heard these episodes already, I cannot recommend them enough. Jerry lives and breathes these practices that Larissa and Adam are sharing. In the episodes, he shares the strategies, the stories, and the outcomes from leading with vulnerability as a superintendent and the ripple effect that that had across his district, from principals to students to classified staff. You'll also probably have heard me share this quote from Dr. Wanda Austin before. It's one I return to over and over again. She says, leadership is not accidental. You have to make the time and space with your team to be strategic in this complex and global world that we live in today. Yet so often we struggle to prioritize making the time and space for these conversations. Whether it's time or whether we're worried about addressing what we might hear, I ask Adam and Larissa how they advise the leaders they're working with about becoming more open and more vulnerable to having these conversations. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tough cookie here because, uh, of course, the simplest answer would be for, for people to incorporate it in their current process. So whenever they have, like, if they, if they practice retrospectives on, uh, on projects, uh, maybe in, uh, instead of just reflecting on uh, what worked, what didn't in the project, maybe the reflection might be a little bit broader and go into life. So for us to discuss what bothers us in life right now, how we can reorganize as a team in order to face new challenges, new um, arising um, challenges. So then you can add topics like retrospect, uh, you can add topics like psychological safety, discuss your family dynamics even, and thanks to it, um, Show people, demonstrate to people that that we can and we should talk about these challenges, and we don't have to. We don't have to do it as like always, like a separate workshop, meeting, or a coaching. But we can really incorporate into our daily routine. Let it be in some things we see during Friday, uh, Friday delivery sessions. So when teams discuss what they delivered throughout the week, in some things we see it during retrospectives. In some teams, we even see so-called chill calls, so like weekly 30, 45 minutes uh, team uh, calls on everything but work. They share hobbies, dreams, uh, like traveling plans, uh, family situations, uh, sometimes tips on gardening, cooking or music or new movies in the market. So whatever, but not work. And this is, uh, but this we see in, in like, yeah, very few teams. We see that teams that from the beginning built a remote culture based also on this. They understood that we need to get to know, we need to have also, you know, uh, conversations over a coffee machine or lunch conversation. We lost them. And, and, and when we inter, when we do questions, when we do research with people, they say that this is what they are missing the most, all these moments. And, and you know, it's funny because, 
it's really easy to recreate, but on the other hand, we are all aware that we suffer right now from fatigue and we don't want more meetings. So I guess if you don't have it solved, the first would be try to incorporate uh, incorporate it into your current habits. And if you have some space and if you are open, go for something like Chico for meetings where you discuss everything weekly, but not work. If I can add, I would say that in one hand, I would try to have a very good clarity on our team objective. So we are aligned on what's our what, where are we going, and invite to the team to play around the how. So we, we know we need to deliver to this objective. How are we organizing to do that? And what can we experiment week after week? You can start by doing a small daily check-in. Everyone answers to one specific question. can start on how do you feel? Or if you were a city today, what city would you bring? What are you bringing uh, to work today with you? Or what do you need to do your best work today? So allowing them to test and experiment and see the impact with small rituals embedded into the, into the team context and rituals. So clarity on what, what we're going and ownership to the team. Of course, the leader has a very important role to set the stage that this is welcome, that we do want to experiment and try different things but allowing them to create situations where they can be vulnerable, they can test, they, they can experiment, they, they can adapt. So mindsets, maybe maybe it's worth mentioning also uh, one of the uh, research pieces that Dan Cable did last year, because what they discovered is what difference... I mean, some teams got really disengaged during COVID and some teams even improved engagement a little bit. And the difference between these teams is the leaders' approach. Whether leaders were like, whether there was an intention in leaders and in teams to adapt, or whether there was an intention for leaders to wait until the normality comes back, you know, until it's over, the COVID is over. And yeah, and, and, and this research quite well explains that leaders who adapted to, to the new reality, they even managed to improve the engagement. So I think the mindset is very important because it's very easy to say, okay, we don't have space for another meeting and so on. But it's even more important to think, okay, thanks to the fact that we feel safe, we have better dynamics. The fact that we have better dynamics, we solve our issues fast. So in the end, we see that it leads, I mean, Conscious development, conscious team development, conscious trust development leads to 20 to 30% of increase in efficiency after two to three months in teams. So, you know, so because, because you are not afraid to talk, you are not afraid of your promotion, you are not afraid that somebody will laugh you out. So you just share. And then teams, when sharing, they storm a little bit, they distribute the, the ownership, distribute tasks, they have full alignment and they just go on. So, yeah, it's a little bit of, of this. If I had one hour, I would spend 55 minutes thinking of what to do and five minutes doing it. And Adam so beautifully highlights how when we make this an integrated part of our weekly practice, it no longer really feels like an overwhelming task. 
Instead, it becomes a sacred space of time where we connect with one another to build and deepen our relationships. He shares that when people are asked, this connection, sharing about one another outside of work, whether it be movies, travel, or other hobbies, is what they miss the most. Where we seem to be missing the mark is that we create these experiences in isolation versus designing these moments as an integrated part of our daily culture. One of the greatest outcomes of a culture of trust and safety is that people develop a sense of autonomy. If I know my voice is being heard, if I as an individual am seen in the organization, if I feel safe to share my ideas and questions, I feel like I am valued. As Daniel Pink shares, this element of autonomy is one of the three key ingredients that develops a drive within us, or that intrinsic motivation. We're not waiting for someone else to always tell us what to do. We're not waiting for permission. We're ready to take initiative. I'll return for part two with Larissa and Adam to talk about the framework they developed. Here's what I encourage you to do in the meanwhile. We created a survey that you can duplicate and use with your teams. We encourage you to download the survey and to explore the idea of a retrospective that you can integrate weekly with your teams. In part two, I'll return with Larissa, Adam, and Nima, and we'll discuss how you can apply these survey results, and they'll share the framework they use when working with teams and why the owl is their leadership mascot. You'll also hear from Nima about a case study she put together about working with students to design for learning during the pandemic. You'll also hear why students believe that relationships are central to their experience in schools. I hope you do the survey. Let us know if you have any questions and we'll see you next week for part two. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Designing Schools community. Leaving a review for the podcast helps others learn about the show, giving them the gift of knowledge and allowing this community to help create access and exposure to ideas and opportunities others may not even know exist.